Open your Bibles to Matthew 19. Matthew 19. If you did not bring a Bible, there's one under a chair in front of you, and you can grab that and turn to page 1048. Page 1048. We are continuing on in our study through the Gospel of Matthew. Last week we studied Jesus' evangelistic encounter with the rich young man. And his question in coming to Jesus was, what must I do to be saved? Most important question ever, ever to ask, ever to be asked, what must I do to be saved? And we're not going to focus on that question or that part of the encounter. This is a part two in a three-part theme here. We're not going to focus on that question, but we are going to focus on what happened after that young man went away sorrowful. He chose not to follow Christ, what we just sang. He chose to not obey Christ, not to follow him, but to walk away instead and to deny and reject Christ as Lord and Savior. But for the disciples, and that's what the majority of us are here this morning, we are disciples, what, what are the takeaways? What are the takeaways from that encounter? And so every, every Sunday we try to bring application. And so last Sunday, the, the thrust of almost the entire message was all about evangelism for those who don't know Christ. But what are the takeaways for the disciples who were there with Christ, who watched this encounter, who had questions? What are the takeaways? Well, that's what we're going to look at this morning in verse 23. So before we dig in, let's pray together. Father, we need to know what your word says. We need to know it clearly without uh, confusion, and so we ask for clarity through your Holy Spirit that we would know what the Bible says, but also that we would know what to do with it, that we would know how to apply it and to live it out in our lives, and so we ask that you would take the truths and, and pinpoint the areas where we need to change, pinpoint the areas where we need help this morning, that you would do that work in each individual, and that's what your Holy Spirit can do, that's what your Holy Spirit must do, and we're dependent upon him this morning, it's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Matthew 19, we're going to start in verse 23. I'll read through verse 30. Please follow along in your Bible as I read. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or fathers, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first." This is God's divine revelation given to us through his gracious spirit. May we heed it this morning. The theme from our text is this. King Jesus teaches his disciples more about eternal life. 
So last week, King Jesus taught his disciples about eternal life. Now he teaches more. It's really, you know, it's hard to come up with these things, but I spent a lot of time trying to have these unique themes. So last week he taught about eternal life. Now he teaches more because we are in a flow of the context starting in verse 16 where we have this young man, this rich young man coming to Jesus, asking his question. This young man is left in verse 23. Here's what takes place immediately thereafter. And then into verse, into chapter 20 through verse 15 or through verse 16, we have a, a continuation because verse 30 at the end of chapter 19 connects with verse 16 of chapter 20. And so next week will be part three. And, and typically, we get caught up in, in following the chapter breaks, thinking that the chapter breaks are, are somehow inspired, and they're not. They were added, I believe, in the 1500s, the verse breaks and the chapter breaks. And so the, the theme is going to continue next week. So it's going to be like a three-part theme on eternal life and how these things fit together. And so this is part two. If you weren't here last week, you can find that sermon online. What I said last week, if you don't care, then we'll just focus in <laughs> this. First thing from the text in front of us. Jesus teaches his disciples lessons from his evangelistic encounter. So Jesus has some lessons to teach his This young man has just walked away, and Jesus addresses his disciples. He turns and says to his disciples, Truly, I say to you, verily, verily, very important. This is really key. He's got some very important lessons. He says, truly, I say to you, and he has two important lessons for his disciples. First lesson, and the first thing he says is, it is impossible for a rich person to be saved. It is impossible for a rich person to be saved. You say, wait a second. I'm not sure that's, well, hang in there. Let's see what Jesus has to say. Let's, let's follow it through scripturally to see what, what, this, what this is saying. Now, the first way that Jesus says it is this way. He says, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, difficulty. So, pastor, how can you say it's impossible? Because Jesus just said it was difficult. He didn't say it was impossible. Well, you need to keep going because he says it again. And how do I know he's saying the same thing just differently? Because it says Again, <laughs> so Jesus looks at them and says, it's impossible, uh, it's difficult. And then he says, again, I tell you, verse 24. So he repeats himself, but now he says it differently. Same thing, just spoken differently. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. So now he's reiterating the point, but this time he puts the point in the form of analogy. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. How easy is it for a camel to go through the eye of a needle? Is that just difficult? Is that like extremely difficult? Have you ever seen a camel? Have you ever been to the zoo and gotten to ride the camel? Have you ever used a needle? Most of us say, nope. No, I've never used a needle. Have you ever tried to thread through the eye of a needle? You ever wanted to put a camel through the eye of a needle? So how easy is that? It's impossible. It's impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Yep. But notice what Jesus said. It's easier for a rich person to be saved. It's easier for a camel to go through. Let me say, get this right. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to be saved. So if putting a camel through the eye of a needle is impossible... 
How impossible is it if that's easier than a rich person being saved? You see the point? Are you following? So when Jesus says it is difficult, let me tell you how difficult it is. He's saying it's difficult. Well, it's more than difficult. It's, it's impossible. It's this impossible. Now you say, well, I'm still not convinced, Pastor. This doesn't seem to line up with Scripture. Notice what the disciples think. So when the disciples heard this, verse 25, they were greatly astonished. Are you greatly astonished at the truth? Are you kind of like, this is crazy? This isn't, this isn't I, can't, I don't know about this. So if you are, you're, you're with the disciples and they ask a question, who then can be saved? Their reaction clearly demonstrates that they understand Jesus' point. They understand that he is saying it is impossible. You say, well, I'm still not convinced. Well, let's, I've got one more piece of information. So verse 26, Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is difficult. With man, this is extremely difficult. What's he say? With man, this is impossible. Now do you see it? It's impossible. So here we have Jesus saying it in three different ways. He says it's difficult. And he explains how difficult it is through an analogy. The disciples understand that, there's, that this is impossible, which doesn't compute with them theologically. And Jesus comes back around and says, yes, with man, it is impossible. Now, some people trying to wrestle with how this verse or how these, this passage fits in with all of Scripture try to downplay the impossibility by highlighting the difficulty. And with man, we really want this to be difficult yet not impossible. We, we, we want there to be a possibility that with man, salvation is possible. Very difficult, but not impossible. And so they want what Jesus is saying impossible to be possible. And so they try to come up with all kinds of interpretations and explanations. You've probably heard some down through the years, uh, preached in the past. But I want you to understand that the context is vital to understanding this, what Jesus is saying. And I believe the meaning is certain. Jesus has made his point in three ways, and the disciples understand it. Why should we struggle with it? So there's no reason to try to understand the analogy of the camel in the eye of the needle other than an analogy of ludicrous nature that this is impossible. He, you're trying to say, well, that, that analogy is just, is, is just, no one would make that analogy. That's the point. The point of the analogy is to demonstrate how ludicrous the thought is. The impossibility of what Jesus says is the point. Do you understand? Do you get it? Are we with me? So far. Okay, let me clarify a few things in light of our text as we move through this. First of all, Jesus has talked about entering the kingdom of heaven, the end of verse 23. He then has e made that equivalent to having eternal life, what comes in the passage before with the rich young man. The disciples then changed the phrase to then who can be saved. Those are three different ways of saying basically the same thing. Now, the, entering the kingdom of heaven, having eternal life, and being saved are not exactly synonymous all the time in Scripture. But here they're being used equivalently because they work synonymously in this passage. So when you, when you say, and we use the term typically being saved, that's our common use. How are people saved? We use saved all the time. That means to have eternal life, to gain eternal life. It also means entering the kingdom of heaven. These three things are talking about the same idea. Now notice also that Jesus was talking about a rich person being saved. 
And I could spend, and maybe you've heard this done, spend a lot of time of talking about why it is difficult for rich people to come to Christ. The problem with that is that in our context, we think that rich people are not us. We think that rich people are those other people because we are either middle class or poor. But I also want you to understand that in light of the world economy, in light of the economy down through the millennium, where do you think you would fit? Where do you think every person in here would fit? Rich. We'd all be rich. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus is not pointing out that it is more difficult, more impossible. So how can you get more impossible than impossible? More impossible for rich people to, to enter the kingdom of heaven. But he is making that point. And there's a lot of reasons for that. You've heard some of the reasons in the past. I'm not going to go into that because I don't believe that's necessarily where Jesus is driving. But notice the disciples' response. This is what I want to highlight. They don't say, wow, we can't believe that rich people can't be saved. They broaden the category by saying, who then can be saved? Who can, if rich people, if it's impossible for rich people to be saved, who can be saved? Their question assumes the answer. If what Jesus is saying is true, and it is, then no one can be saved. That's the important part of the question. If rich people can't be saved, then no one can be saved. Now, why would they expand on Jesus' point? He's simply talking about rich people, isn't he? Why would they broaden the category? Well, maybe you've heard this as well. But in the days of Jesus and the disciples, the common Jewish understanding of who was closest to the kingdom was the rich. Does that sound familiar? That if God has blessed you, with great wealth, you must be more loved by God. You must be closer to the kingdom because he's given you more than he's given the poor. The idea that God shines his blessings on the rich, therefore he loves the rich more. Therefore, if anyone's going to enter the kingdom of heaven, who's the closest to that? The rich. And if the rich are the closest to the kingdom, who's the farthest away? The poor. And if it's impossible for the people who are the closest to the kingdom of heaven not to enter it, what is that saying about the people way down there? It's more So the idea for the disciples is if rich people can't get into the kingdom of heaven, who can get in the kingdom of heaven? And what's the implication of their understanding? Well, it's right there in your notes in case you didn't know. It is impossible for anyone to be saved. So you thought it was bad enough that I said it's impossible for rich people to be saved. It's worse than that. It's impossible for anyone to be saved. If what Jesus is saying is true, the disciples understand this to mean that no one can be saved. So the broader implications are more than just for the rich. And the disciples expand that. And I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't, he doesn't correct them. So it's, it's important to see where Christ corrects his disciples and where he doesn't, where he changes their understanding or changes their question. And here, he doesn't correct them. He doesn't say, no, you got it all wrong. I'm just talking about rich people. I think they get the point and they get it in such a way that their response really helps us to see even more than what Jesus originally said. Um, and that's the point. So instead of correcting them that says, no, it's just impossible or very hard uh, for rich people, he points them to the solution. Notice the solution to the impossibility. But Jesus looked at them and said, now, how many times have you heard me say, but is my favorite word in all the Bible? 
And here's why. It's impossible for anyone to be saved. But, man, don't you love that? But is the greatest news. It's like your parents tell you, we'll never be able to afford to go to Disneyland. But, ooh, <laughs> what? There's a but there? There's, there's something on the other side? Of, there's a contrast? But grandma and grandpa can, and they're taking us next week. Woohoo! Yay for grandma and grandpa. It's always that contrast. You know, your kids come to you and they say, Mom and Dad, I, I love you. I always respect you. I think you're the wisest, but... You're like, oh, that's not, that's not where we want. The but is important. With man, this is impossible. There's a but. But he looked at them and said. So in this but, he introduces the best news ever known to man. God can do the impossible. I, I don't want you to miss that. If you're looking for good news this morning, here's good news. The gospel is good news. God can do the impossible. God can do the impossible. What is impossible for man? With man, this is impossible. It's a camel through the eye of a needle. Do you understand? And that's easier than a rich man being saved. And if the rich man is the closest to the, the kingdom of heaven, then that's even easier for a rich man to be saved than the poor man to be saved. Where does that put us poor people? If you think you're poor, you're farther down the road. It's more impossible for you. But with God, all things are possible. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. The focus here is on ability. The focus is on man's ability and man's power compared with God's ability and God's power. That's the point. What kind of power does mankind have? What kind of ability does mankind have to get into the kingdom of heaven? And God is saying mankind has no power, no ability, impossibility. But with God, God's power, God's ability, all things are possible. So let me give you some caveats here. Be careful at turning this statement of fact into a promise of action. We love this phrase. Maybe you have it on a, a you know, an embroidered pillow. Maybe you have it in a saying hang, hung on the wall. Maybe you've put this, with God, all things are, all things are possible with God. We love this saying, and we should. I'm not trying to take that away, but I'm saying be careful at turning what Jesus says as a fact into a promise of action. What does that mean? What do I mean by that? Not everything you attempt or want to happen is possible, even if attempted for God's kingdom and for God's glory. We like that phrase, and we like to turn it into a promise. With God, all things are possible. Therefore, whatever I am trying to do is possible because God has promised me that whatever I try to do, if it's for him or for his glory, he'll do because all things are possible. Is that what he's saying? No, no, it's not about if you determine that this is the right thing to do, you can just claim this promise and stick it on anything you think is righteous and holy and, and just claim God's possibility. That's not the point. And also, don't take this statement of fact out of context. What is Jesus saying is possible with God? The salvation of every human being. With God, it's possible. All things are possible. All things there is speaking specifically of evangelism. It's speaking specifically of entering the kingdom of heaven, of having eternal life, of being saved. That's the immediate context. That's the possible, what's possible with God. Now, do I think it's wrong to take that statement of fact 
and say, well, that's only limited to salvation and, and God's grace. And with God, there's a lot of things that are impossible. No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying, yes, if you want to understand God's power and ability to do all things that equate with his nature and his will, I'll put some caveats on there, then yes, there's nothing impossible for God. But notice the context and notice where this promise comes before just grabbing this promise and, and putting it on anything you want to put it on. Yes, God is not limited in his power and ability except by his character and his will. Anything God chooses to do, that, and he can only choose what, what accords with his character, what accords with his uh, eternal will, he can do. And so we have to understand that. So I'm not limiting that at all, but I want you to see where, the, where this really shows up. So what's some, what are some implications? Some implications that flow out of this idea. The first implication is salvation is accomplished by God. If salvation is impossible for man, but possible with God, then who accomplishes salvation? God saves. Who saves? God saves. Who saves people? God saves people. Who saves the rich? God saves the rich. Who saves the poor? God saves the poor. Who saves any person that will ever be saved? God is the God who saves. Mankind doesn't save. God saves. So salvation is accomplished by God. Secondly, no one can be saved, therefore, apart from God. He's saying that. No one can be saved apart from God. As if we can just save ourselves while God looks on. Or we can save ourselves in conjunction where God doesn't want us to be saved, but we can make sure someone is saved. No. No one can be saved apart from God. Self-salvation is impossible. Salvation by human efforts. Rich young man, the passage before. Salvation by works, by keeping the law, is impossible. It will never happen. You can keep trying to squeeze that camel through the eye of a needle. You can try to find the smallest camel humanly known to man and try to squeeze him through the eye of a needle. You're not going to be able to make this work. You can keep trying. It's impossible. So this is the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that you cannot save yourself. You cannot save yourself by your works. You cannot save yourself by your efforts. But God can save you when you trust in him. And if you trust in him, what does he promise to do? He will save you. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord might be saved. Did I get it? No, I see some of you shaking your head. You're like, no, you're twisting scripture again, pastor. Watch that. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, will be saved, guaranteed to be saved, if you call on God to save you, the only one who can save. He has promised to save everyone and anyone who turns to him for salvation. God can save. So if you're not saved, and you come to the point where you say, wait a second, I've been trying to save myself. I've been trying to earn my way to heaven. I've been trying to have the good deeds outweigh the bad deeds. I've been trying to do that. The answer to your efforts to get to heaven, to have eternal life, to get into the kingdom of God that way are... The answer to that is impossible. So stop trying. If I can't get there, then what must I do to be saved? Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Trust that Jesus Christ, we sang it. We sang it repeatedly this morning. Trust that Jesus Christ came because God loved the world. He sent his only son, his only begotten son into this world so that we might be saved. How? Because Jesus Christ lived the perfect life you 
couldn't live. You can't do enough. You can't keep the law perfectly, but who did? Jesus Christ. Who died for the sins that you committed? Jesus Christ. He died on the cross for all who trust in him. All their sins paid for. The punishment of their sins taken by Jesus Christ. And then, did he stay dead? Is he in the tomb? No. On the third day, he rose again. Guaranteeing that all who trust in him will be accounted righteous because his blood pays their price. Their, his righteousness is imputed to their account, is accredited to their account. Their sins have been accredited to Christ. He's paid for it. You're washed clean. You're justified. And you'll be in heaven for eternity because you have eternal life if you simply trust in Christ alone. That's the good news. The bad news is you can't save yourself. The good news is Christ can save you. Christ will save you if you trust in Christ alone. That's the good news. Also, the implication here is there is no one God cannot save. This is the promise. That's just, it's put in a statement of fact, but this is the promise. And this is the promise for you, Christian, to cling to this morning. There is no one God cannot save. There is no one unsavable. There's no one outside of God's power to save. How many times has someone told you, I'm too wicked of a sinner to be saved? I'm too rotten. God could never save me. And you say, if that's true, then Jesus is a liar. Which one is, which one? Are you telling the truth or is Jesus telling the truth? Because what Jesus says is with God, all things are possible. There is no one God cannot save. So let me ask you, Christian, who is that person that you don't think will ever be saved? You say, you know, this person I work with, this family member, this, this neighbor. <laughs> I've had a neighbor, all right? Like, this, that's why I chuckled. It brought memories back, all right? You say, that person, I don't think... That never get saved. Who has that been in your life? Maybe there's more than one. Who is that person that you think don't, you don't think will ever be saved? And then I'll connect it to this. Who have you given up praying for, for them to be saved? Maybe you prayed for someone for years, maybe decades, maybe multiple decades, and you said, guess what? I've prayed, I've witnessed, I've prayed, I've witnessed over and over for years, for decades. And they're, they're not only not closer to salvation, they appear to be farther away. Who's that person? Who are those people? And in that despair and discouragement, you just give up, say, they'll never be saved. What's this promise for you, Christian? There is no one God cannot save. That's the promise. Some of you remember Gary Dykema. Gary and Jan Dykema remembers here for, I've been thinking, at least 40 years. They were here when I came. And uh, for years, decades, Gary Dykema prayed for his brother Ron Dykema to be saved. As a church family, we prayed on Wednesday nights and we prayed on Sunday nights for Ron Dykeman to be saved. His, his kids prayed for decades for Uncle Ron to be saved. They, they prayed and they prayed and they witnessed and they witnessed. They shared the gospel dozens or more times over the years. And the Dykemas lived here for all those decades and Ron lived here and then he moved to California and some other places kind of all around and he moved back and, and uh, didn't want anything to do with Christ, didn't want anything to do with Christianity. And uh, Gary and Jan moved to Florida because that's what uh, wise people do when they get to a certain age. Uh, they get out of the freezing cold and they, they move someplace nice. And, uh, and so that's what they did. And uh, 
And lo and behold, and I, and I wish I remembered all the details. And uh, if Fred Pratt was here, and, and, and uh, he's not here today, but hopefully he'll be back next Sunday, he would know the details because um, Gary called Fred and said, my brother's struggling, has some issues. Can you help drive him to and from the hospital? So Fred started driving him, and Fred started witnessing to him again, prayed for decades, witnessing to him. And by God's grace, Ron Dykema trusted Christ. This old, with cancer, I mean, just, he was a wicked man. He would tell you that. He lived a wicked life. He, he, he did things, and he just regretted. He blew up his family, and, and just, oh, just miserable life. For decades running from God. And he was saved. And he was transformed. And he was changed. And you go to visit Ron. And when he came to church. And he came, he'd come with his walker. He'd come in pain. He'd come in all those things. And he would hurt. And he would just smile. So happy to be here. He was reading his Bible. He was growing. He, he, he was so wanting to be baptized so fast. He didn't want. Because cancer was killing him. He didn't want to die without being baptized. Not because he, he thought it would save him. But because he wanted people to know he's a Christian. How fast? How soon can I get baptized? He was just anxious to jump in the water. And uh, just, and some of you have told me, some of you, when Ron got saved, he said, well, we, we prayed for him for decades. I remember praying for him for decades. And as far as I know, the Dykemas never gave up. So this is not a, a, an indictment on them. They prayed, they never quit, they never gave up. And God saved this wicked sinner, like you and I. And he waited till he was really old. I don't know how old. He waited, and it wasn't a deathbed confession, but he went through this whole life. God can save anyone. There is no one God cannot save. Do you believe that? Are you practicing the principles that live that out with the people in your life? I could tell the stories of, um, and I, man, I'm really bad with names, and this is what bad I don't write it in my notes. Um, the British orphanage builder, a man of great prayer. Some of you might remember his name. He built orphanages and did that. Yeah, George Mueller, thank you. George Mueller prayed specifically for, I think it was five people to be saved throughout his life. And for 10 years, he, he, for 10 years, he prayed for all these five people. And 10 years, one person, one of them was saved. The next decade, another person was saved. The third decade, another person was saved. The fourth decade, another one was saved. And he died. And after his death, the fifth person was saved. Now, it's, it's not a guarantee that if you pray hard enough, one person every decade will be saved. That's not the point. The point is, don't give up. Don't quit. Why? Because with God, all things are possible. In the salvation of the most wicked person, all you have to do is read the book of Acts and see the apostle Paul come to Christ. The chiefest of sinners, saved by the grace of God. Is there anyone unsavable by God? No. God's power, God's ability, God's grace is greater than all these things. Trust in this promise. So, if that's true, then what must we do? What can we do? What should we do? Share the gospel, trusting in God's unlimited power to save anyone he chooses to save. Salvation is not limited by God's power. It's only limited by God's choice. So we share the gospel, trusting this promise, trusting God's power, trusting God's ability, knowing that if he chooses to save them, he will save them. By his grace, he'll use us. We leave that choice with him, and we cling to that promise, and we work with all of our might. So it's God's choice. Yet, notice carefully with God's choice, God ordains the means as well as the ends. If God has chosen someone to be saved, they will be saved how? What means? Through prayer and the sharing of the gospel.
confidence and encouraged once again to begin to pray again for those who we've given up praying for, to again share the gospel, because with God, all things are possible. Now, if that was the end, I mean, it'd be great to end on the high note, right? Let's go home now. Well, then Peter said in reply, notice, notice Peter's reply. Peter asked a question from Jesus' evangelistic encounter. Here's Peter's question. What will Jesus' disciples have from following Jesus? Now, you just, with God, I mean, you just hear that great, that great confident promise, and then Peter's like, well, what about us? What are we going to have? <laughs> so you have to notice the comparison between what Jesus wanted, wanted the disciples to learn from this evangelistic encounter and what Peter was focused on in the encounter, and, and the comparison can be fascinating. It brings up a lot of questions. And Jesus was focused on why the young man went away, what that said about who would have eternal life, what it said about how they would get eternal life. Peter is focused on what Jesus had promised this young man if he would follow. So if you go back to verse 21, Jesus had said, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus had promised him heavenly treasure if he was willing to give up earthly treasure. And following Christ, he had made that promise. And so in hearing that promise, I, I think, was Peter thinking something the whole time? Once Jesus said that, was Peter's mind racing? It reminded me of Jesus' call to Peter from Matthew chapter 4. So, so this, this call had gone to Peter before. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me. Wait, what did he say to the rich young man? Come, follow me. And he said, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. I wonder if Peter's listening to what Jesus said to the rich young man and said, you know what, I, I would like that invitation. Follow me, and you will have treasures in heaven. But instead, you said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. I wonder if Peter is feeling a little bit slighted by what came with following Jesus for him. Now, do we know that? No, that's just me being uh, facetious and making Peter look as bad as possible. And so that's what Christians do. We take Peter, we make him look as bad as possible. Tracy gets upset and yells at me later for not making fun of Peter and all those things. And so that's just the way we roll. <laughs> so that would be the most uh, cynical way or, uh, of looking at Peter and putting Peter in the worst light. But I do think it's definitely connected. It's definitely connected to what the promise had been about uh, you will have treasure in heaven. I think, does, I think Peter wants some of that treasure. I think Peter's wondering, well, what, what, what are we going to receive? We, we've been following you. We, we did leave everything. We did leave our boats and our nets and our family. We, we have been following you. What, what, what's it, what about us? Now, you don't have to read a selfish motive here. You could simply read it as confusion. Wait a second. If there's treasure to come, where, where's that treasure at? Where's it, when's it coming? And, and so it is instructive, again, that, that Jesus doesn't rebuke him. He instructs him, but he doesn't rebuke him. And, and, and so in this instruction, it's, it's very instructive for us. We are his disciples. If you're a disciple of Christ, you've been following him. You have to be willing to leave all things behind to follow Christ and, and be his disciples. So what does Jesus do? He promises three things to his disciples in the kingdom. He promises three things to his disciples in the kingdom. So Jesus, we have left everything and followed you. What will we have? Jesus said to him, verse 28, here's the answer. No rebuke. Explanation and instruction. Truly, notice again, listen, very important. Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, 
you who have followed me, just notice every phrase is important, will also, and so he goes into what these promises are, in the new world, uh, literal translation, translation of the Greek, in the regeneration, in the dissolution and recreation of the cosmos, in the new heavens and the new earth, pointing back to what he said to the rich young man, in heaven, you will have treasures in heaven, in the future, when I rule and reign. You can say all of those things. I believe it's also another way of saying in the kingdom of heaven. We have heaven, we have the kingdom of heaven, we have all of these things taking place. So this is a future speaking. That's why I put it that way in the notes. The apostles in the new world, the apostles will judge with Christ. Very specific, the apostles. He says, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones. When I sit on a throne, you will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So I believe he's speaking specifically to the apostles. He says this, and the word you seems to be very specific. There are 12 thrones. There are 12 apostles. The next promise, verse 29, is broadened from you to everyone. So this one seems very specific. So D.A. Carson puts it this way. At the consummation, the 12 will judge the nation of Israel, presumably for its general rejection of Jesus Messiah. That's his take I think it's a good one. I think there's, it's open and it's not easy to understand, but I think it's there. Now, before we move on, I want you to see who Jesus is. Notice who Jesus is. Notice what Jesus says about himself. Truly, I say to you, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. Who's the Son of Man? Jesus. He's referring to himself as the Son of Man. Where does the Son of Man come from? The book of Daniel. The glorious Son of Man, the glorious King of Kings. He will sit on a glorious throne. And his throne is different than the 12 thrones for the 12 apostles. He's on a glorious throne. They're on thrones. He is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And they rule and judge underneath him as the ruler and judge. So Jesus is saying something very significant about who he is. And again, it's so easy for us just to blow past that because we're looking at application for ourselves instead of saying who is Jesus. Jesus is the Son of Man. He's the fulfillment of the Jewish Messiah from the Old Testament. He is the Son of Man from the book of Daniel. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords who will rule on a throne. What's the second promise? So the apostles will judge with Christ in the new heavens and new earth. Secondly, every disciple will be repaid super abundantly for what he has left for Christ. Every disciple, everyone, will be repaid super abundantly. <laughs> it's not, I couldn't come up with a better word. Super abundantly for what he has left for Christ. Listen carefully. Nothing you give up to follow Jesus will not be paid, will not be repaid or paid abundantly, beyond abundantly. Christian, you will never lose in following Christ. You will never lose in following Christ. Not only is he worth it all, but he will do more, far more than simply reimburse you for your time and treasure. So it's like working for a company. You, you know, I'm going to go put things on, the, on my card because I didn't have a company card. I'm gonna, and I'm going to turn in my receipts and they're going to reimburse me one for one. I'm going to get repaid. I don't, I don't lose out in being a part of the kingdom of heaven. Is that what Jesus is saying? He's saying, whatever you gave up, if you gave up a brother, I'll give you one more brother. If you gave up a house, I'll give you another house. Is it one for one? Or he says, no, it's a hundredfold. You give up one brother, you get a hundred brothers. You give up one house, you're going to have a hundred houses. I mean, who can live in 100 houses? Okay. That's the point. You won't lose. My question for you this morning, Christian, is what have you left to follow Christ? What have you given up? Is he worth it? Is he worth it? Do you regret it? Have you come out on the short end of the stick 
wow, I really wish I would have not become a Christian. I really wish I wouldn't have followed Christ. I, I mean, just think of where I could have been. I, thought, I think about this every now and then, and it's probably not a good thought, so I'm not telling you should do this. You ever got the end-of-the-year giving statement from the church, and they keep track of, of what you gave, and despite them being off, you still know it was really close? Okay. <laughs> Just joking, Charles, just joking. Okay, uh, the idea is you, you get that in the state when you say, what could I have done with all that money? Ever done that? Am I, am I the only one who does that? And then you say, well, I've been a Christian, you know, say close to 40 years. If you were to add up 40 years of giving to the Lord all this money, what could I have with all that money? Man, I really wish I wouldn't have given all that money. I wish I'd have kept all that money. I really wish I wasn't a Christian because think of all the stuff I could have. I mean, if I would have invested it in Bitcoin, I could have been a trillionaire by now. I could have owned the world. Have you ever, have you ever had those thoughts? Okay, so I'm the only one who confesses that thought. But I'll tell you this. Even when I have that thought, I, I, I've never regretted it. It's not worth it at all. I've been repaid by God. More than reimbursed, super abundantly repaid, blessed, taken care of. Far more than if I'd have kept every cent and invested it wisely every way. God takes care of his people and you never come out on the short end of the stick. That's the point. Is this promise for this life or the life to come? There is some confusion here because in the uh, parallel passages in Mark... I'll put one up on the screen, Mark 10, 29 through 30. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother, brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. So the other gospels talk about receiving it now. Here in Matthew, it's just left open. Is it now or is it later? I believe it begins now. It's inaugurated now in this life. You are super abundantly blessed for anything you lose for, notice carefully there's a caveat here, for the name of Christ, for the sake of Christ. And in the life to come, will you not have even greater blessings? There is a cost to following Jesus. Every true disciple from Peter down understands this. And this cost is incurred for my name's sake. Notice, this isn't someone using Jesus as an excuse to turn their back on their responsibilities. Well, I don't want to have to take care of mom and dad, so I'll become a Christian. I don't want to have to care for my brothers and sisters. I don't want to go to family dinner anymore. I should become a Christian. I should become a Christian uh, so I don't have to take care of my... I don't know where this all goes, but you get the point. It's because of the call of God that you were taken away. It was because of the call of God in your life that you obeyed that your family turns against you. When you trust Christ and you take his name and you follow him for his name's sake, it will cost you. I don't know what. What have you lost? What have you left? What does it cost you? But you're doing it to follow Jesus. You're doing it for his name's sake. What does that say about Jesus? He is God. You follow him. You take his name. You do all these things for Jesus. Who is Jesus saying he is to his disciples? He is God and you must follow him. And if you do this, you will not lose, no matter what you lose, no matter the cost, you will always come out far ahead with God. Thirdly, the third promise is every disciple will inherit eternal life. And will inherit eternal life. There it is, right at the end of verse 29. Isn't that enough, Peter? 
Isn't that enough, Christian? I mean, if eternal life costs you everything, like the rich young man was supposed to sell everything, if it costs you everything, would that be enough for you? Eternal life, a million dollars. Eternal life, a billion dollars. Eternal life, all three houses and five cars and everything else you own. Is that enough? It should be enough. Anything more than that is simply what we would call icing on the cake. Eternal life is the cake. Christ is the cake. Everything else is icing on the cake. Verse 30, but many who are first will be last and the last first. There's another but, and that becomes a problem because what does that mean? And what are this passage? I'm just going to leave you with a cliffhanger. Come back next week. We're going to answer the question. What does it mean? Many who are first will be last and the last first. Actually, it'll be two weeks. I don't plan on preaching in Matthew uh, at Sunday in the park. I forgot about Sunday in the park. So we got two weeks. If you can remember, but I'm going to tell you the answer is found in chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. So read ahead. See if you can come up with the answer. See if you can see the answer in Scripture. Come back in two weeks. We'll find the answer together. Walk through the Scripture. So read ahead. Study ahead. Answer the question. And in conclusion, if you're not a Christian, realize that you cannot save yourself. If you're not a Christian, realize you you cannot save yourself. You must be saved by God. So trust in Jesus Christ alone to save you, granting you the gift of eternal life. Trust in Jesus Christ alone. He will give you the gift of eternal life. And if you're a believer here today, pray for unbelievers. Pray for unbelievers. Trusting in God's power to do the impossible. Boldly share the gospel, trusting in God's power to do the impossible. So we do two things, trusting that God does the impossible. We pray and we share because God does the impossible. Father, this is your word. It's your truth. They're your promises. You are the God of the impossible. And you are the God who super abundantly blesses us no matter what the cost. May we cling to you. May we follow you. May we be willing to give up anything in our lives to be your disciples, whatever the cost, knowing that it will be worth it all in this life, but even more so in the life to come. We thank you for who you are and for what you do. In Jesus' name, amen.